Hi everyone and welcome to the Tyndall Talks. This is the Tyndall Center's official podcast. I'm Renee from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia and today we are going to talk about cities and live music. So with the UK's goal of net zero by 2050, we need different sectors to do their share of actions to ensure a low carbon future. So today, as we said, we will focus on two sectors, cities and live music. And cities account for more than 50% of the global population, 80% of global GDP, two-thirds of global energy consumption, and more than 70% of annual global carbon emissions. So how can cities in the UK follow the trajectory of net zero by 2050? And then next, we will talk about one of the things we really, really missed during COVID, live music or concerts. So live music is something that many of us enjoy, but like every sector, it has to consider how it can significantly reduce its emissions to become net zero. So today we have three guests. We have Carly McLachlan, Sarah Manor, and Chris Jones from the Tindall Center Manchester to talk to us about these two topics. So hi everyone and welcome to the Tindall Talks. Hi. Hi. Hi Rani. Hi. So I'm really, really glad to have you all here today. And before we dive into all of these details about emissions and live music, etc., um, just please introduce yourselves and what you do, how you've been involved in this research of cities and live music. So maybe we can start with Carly. Uh, sure, I'm Carly McLaughlin. I'm Professor of Climate and Energy Policy at the University of Manchester. And I also lead the part of the Tyndall Centre that is based at Manchester. And I've worked across these two areas uh, with colleagues in the Tyndall Centre. So I've worked on cities decarbonisation and also on the live music decarbonisation. Thank you, Sarah. Good afternoon, Renee, and good afternoon, everyone. So my name is Sarah Manda, and I'm a, a reader in energy and climate policy as part of the Tyndall Centre at the University of Manchester. So my research, what I'm really interested in is how um, how net zero, how low carbon um, intersects with the way we go about our everyday lives. And as a kind of a, a passionate gig goer and a fan of live music, I um, I'm very interested and and kind of enthusiastic about how the how the sector can kind of can contribute to to net zero and and how kind of the everyday activities of the sector may need to change in order to achieve that. Thank you. And Chris? Hi, so uh, I'm the Norge Exchange Fellow for Tyndall Manchester. That means I work to connect the research, the excellent research we do within Tyndall Manchester to other organisations. And it, it's through that that I've been engaging with cities, helping them to set climate change targets and plan for that, and also different sectors. So live music is an example of the engagement we do with other sectors, helping them to to do things like uh, set a net zero target and uh, work towards that. Yeah, so thanks everyone. So I think we have the best panel here today to talk about these two topics. And so first let's do and uh, let's talk about the cities. So in particular cities in the UK, what data have you found about how much UK cities contribute to the nation's emissions? Chris, maybe? Well, um, yeah, so it, it, it's really interesting one with cities because 
there's really there's really two sides of it there's there's the there's the carbon emissions from the city itself so things that go on like traveling around using energy in the buildings um you know if, if there are any little industries within the city um those are the direct emissions from the city and, and you know there are there are things within directly within the city's control usually but cities are really a hub for for things that go on elsewhere so a lot a lot of goods come in come into cities from elsewhere things we buy um and a lot goes out of cities typically in the forms of, of waste and sometimes um other things they sell out there that's the consumption emissions from the city and, and those two those two figures are, qu are quite different and they and they they mean quite different things but usually a city will have a bigger footprint than just its its own direct emissions of co2 um, and it's quite timely to talk about this because um, transport and the energy we use in buildings are, are two of the, the really big direct emissions from cities. And the UK has just released a, a new strategy trying to, to look at these emissions. Um, and they're a really important area to be looking at at the moment. Um, so, Chris, you mentioned about uh, transport, energy and having direct emissions and consumption emissions. Uh, so based on all of this, what kind of actions do cities have to take to align to the UK goal of net zero? Is it uh, ensuring that there's uh, better public transport or, you know, retrofitting buildings and homes? You know, what, what are the most important things? Well, fundamentally, we, we have to stop using fossil fuels in cities, so we, we can't be using natural gas, for example, to, to heat our homes um, in boilers, which is, you know, the, the most common way in, in cities in the UK. Um, so that needs to change things like heat pumps or maybe a hydrogen system. Um, but but some alternative and to reduce demand because you know, they're too wasteful at the moment. Uh, and, you know, another big area is transport. That's another way we directly use fossil fuels in cities when we drive a car by directly using fossil fuels. Uh, and, and that's something that has to change. And you mentioned public transport, really important lever within cities because cities have the, the kind of density, they have the concentration of people to really um, make something like public transport work to replace cars. You know, you can be car free in a city um, more easily than you can be in a rural area. Getting more people out of their cars to, to walking, to cycling, to be safe to do that, to travel on public transport are really important parts of, of a city going net zero. I mean, I think I would, I agree with all of that. Um, and I suppose like uh, where Chris started of we have to, you know, stop using fossil fuels. And so anywhere where you're doing that, that's that's where you need to think about taking action. But I think for cities, it has, and any organisation looking to decarbonise, it has to be part of everything that you do. You know, it's not an add-on. It's not something that like the people in the green team do and then other people kind of pick bits up or work completely against it in other areas has to become really central to your vision of what you want to be as a city. How do you want to provide um, good jobs and good lives for your citizens? And it doesn't it, it won't work. It's too big a challenge if you just leave that to like a few people in the environment team. It has to become really core business so that every person that's working for the city authority sees it as their business to embed transitioning to zero carbon in the things that they're doing. And then the other thing that I think is really important for cities is that they have huge convening power uh, in their local area. So there's the things they directly do and the things where they're you know, burning fossil fuels directly. Um, but then they also have all this power for 
working as a collective with the citizens and the organisations in their city to bring about decarbonisation across all of that and looking at all the different points of kind of intervention that, that each of those actors have to accelerate the transition to, to zero carbon. So it's got to be central and it's also got to be really collaborative. That's really, um, I really like, Carly, what you said about it's got to be part of everything you do and that cities have to I guess, uh, you know, take a look at their citizens, how their citizens are living their lives, their lifestyles, etc. Um, just to follow up to that, I guess, are there any model cities in the UK that we're seeing is doing a really good job at trying to, to do this transition to net zero? So I think it's fair to say that there are lots of cities doing a lot of really good work in planning for this and in trying to get collaborations and pilots and new ways of doing things off the ground. But I think what we're not yet seeing um, is you know, a city that's really transformed because fossil fuels are so ingrained in every aspect of our daily life. Like try and do anything and not emit carbon. It's really, really difficult to do because it's it's just so ingrained in every aspect. Every time you spend any money, every time you travel about, you know, it's 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 very difficult. And so I think it's hard to say yet yeah, I think the others might disagree that there's a city that has really transformed in terms of its emissions profile, but there are, you know, sort of a number of cities that have really got their act together on having like this collaboration, having a plan, really trying to leverage in kind of funds to get pilots going and to scale those up. But we don't yet see a city where we're like, oh, that's what everyone else needs to do because they've really managed to get to be a, a low carbon city. It's it's so connected with the national system of energy provision um, that it's, it's actually difficult for cities to do that, I think. And so as well as taking action in their own area to reduce demand, to get as much local generation happening as possible, there's also a really important role for cities to, to speak to national government and to national providers to say this is what we need to really help make that transition happen at the local level. So yes, there's lots that cities can do themselves and they can ask for more powers as well to do more, but it is also about national government creating that right environment to really let them, you know, to kind of unleash their enthusiasm um, and their commitment to decarbonisation. So, I mean, as well as the live music work, I'm also um, part of a partnership called Our Streets Chawton, which is a, a lottery-funded active travel partnership. And so through that work, I've been um, doing a lot more work on transport than I had previously. And and I think transport is, is one area where different cities in the UK and elsewhere are... Um, at least attempting some some good things um, or, you know, have have quite big activities and big plans. So, for example, in Manchester, we've got a very ambitious um, active travel and um, so walking and cycling strategy that's um, the city's been very successful in applying for government funding for um, infrastructure. So um, cycling infrastructure across the city. There was exciting news the other week that, for example, Birmingham, has um, some really ambitious low carbon neighborhood plans to um, so that in in large areas of the city um, walking and cycling are the you know the first choice in terms of, of travel as opposed to private car use um, and in the UK certainly we can look to other European 
countries and cities, for example, Copenhagen, um, you know, so for places where um, rather than being designed around cars, our urban spaces need to be redesigned and reimagined around active travel, walking and cycling or around public transport. And, you know, in Manchester, um, we're looking to we're going to be um, taking the buses back into private ownership in order out of private, you know, being run privately and being so to be run by the city. Uh, so I said that really badly. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, uh, so it's essentially to be able to to reduce the price of public transport, but also to make sure that public transport um, serves the places that people need to go at the times that they need to go so that um, the city can have more control over its public transport. Yeah. And so those are exciting things, but I think that then kind of leads into your question around um, what more needs to happen is that often cities are in competition or with each other mm. for funding, which is um, which is great if you're the city or the, the town that's that's successful in attracting funding. And you can, you know, I, I count uh, Greater Manchester as one of the city regions that has been successful in attracting a lot of funding for different aspects of, of net zero and, and, and climate change. But what about the towns and the cities that aren't? And this comes on the back of, you know, a decade of austerity, which has seen local authorities perhaps lo use, lose a lot of their expertise and their capacity, um, which then has a knock-on effect in their, you know, how successful they can be in, in kind of competing with other, other towns and other cities for those funds. So I, I think that that, kind of competitive aspect to the funding is a is a huge barrier in terms of cities and towns um, being able to to kind of meet the climate change challenge. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I guess uh, before we go officially to the next question about the national government, I'm just really curious because in Norwich, for example, in our city, um, we've seen a lot of expansion recently, especially um, with a lot of people, I guess, migrating from bigger cities to smaller cities like Norwich, we've seen a lot of, you know, new housing approved, new villages being uh, basically built. Um, but public transport, as you say, is important, but it's also really expensive. And we don't have, you know, as nice public transport as you would in bigger cities like Manchester. So I was wondering, you know, what is going to happen with cities like Norwich that are you know, continuously expanding, but whose public transport remains quite bad. Yeah, so I mean, you, you highlighted a, a problem that really for 10 years and beyond, we've not been getting planning right in terms of preparing for net zero. The Climate Change Act was first passed in 2008, but you can't really say that the, you know, the planning infrastructure around the UK has, has been switched on to that fact. So we are still planning and building in ways that require people to have a, a petrol diesel car largely and in homes that aren't really fit for the future so you know we are adding to the problem still and that hopefully will change that there are new planning um you know new planning re regulations coming in that hopefully might start to address that but we are behind the game on this and that means there's going to be a, a more difficult challenge to overcome these issues we can't swap every car to an electric car necessarily which is tempting, but that won't solve congestion problems or all road safety issues if we do that. So we do need novel solutions. And and 
we probably need to rethink public transport, rethink buses, and and you know there are great models from other cities we can look at for for using apps, for using data more effectively, for using pricing more effectively to to overcome some of these issues. But it does need funding and a bit more creativity. I think there are those those ideas are out there. You know, a lot of great research has been done on this topic um, that we can draw on, uh, but it has to start immediately. Yeah, otherwise we're just going to keep adding to the problem. Yeah, thanks. And I think it goes back to the idea as well about it being central to everything that you do. So you have to make sure that the pressure to provide additional housing isn't met at the expense of moving to a zero carbon uh, society. So you, you have to consider both of those things together. Um, and be much more kind of rounded in the assessments that are made of of what policy priorities are, rather than kind of getting to maybe the end of that of of that process of um, agreeing to investment for new properties or planning, and then saying, oh well, now we'd quite like to do something to to cut emissions. Oh well, it's too difficult. Um, you know, we didn't build that into the contracts. There's no extra funding. It needs to be in right from the beginning. Um, and I mean, we find examples where. Local authorities might be investing directly in properties themselves, so they have a lot of power there to to see what kind of properties they want. And then, I mean, if we move on to your next question around, you know, what the sort of national um, the national government can do to to support that local action, there is this kind of tension, I think, of some local authorities wanting to go further in their planning, uh, but feeling a nervousness about um, potentially being challenged on that by large uh, building companies. And so it's much easier if that's done at a national level, but we do see it happening at a local level. People kind of want to go want to go further. So making sure that that happens as soon as possible and is and is rigorously enforced. And I think the other the other thing that's really important is where we've where we're learning about schemes. So, for example, there's a public sector decarbonisation fund, you know, so that's putting quite a lot of money into decarbonising buildings. But the way that that scheme is run at the moment is it's on very short timescales. And so it's very difficult for local authorities to plan to use that strategically. It's like a real rush to get the money out of the door. Um, and that doesn't always mean that you're making the sort of best long term decisions about decarbonisation. You're doing the stuff that you can do quickly and get it done and get the money spent. Um, and so being able to learn from those schemes that have had you know, some, some great success, but how you could really amplify that is to take a longer term view uh, to allow local authorities to really plan in that, in that strategic way. And that links to what Sarah was saying as well about how much competition you have and how often that competition happens. Um, if, you could, if you could provide more sort of stable funding that cities and local authorities can plan for, um, then I think you would get better outcomes on decarbonisation locally. Thanks, Carly. And I guess you've answered uh, the question about the support that cities will need from national government. I'm not sure if Chris or Sarah wanted to add something to that. Quick, one quick, very quick point is that uh -huh. the UK is one of the most centralised political systems in, in the OECD. Cities in this country have far a lot less power than a lot of other cities overseas so we do see that the cities that are able to take a stronger lead are the ones who are getting more um devolution of powers and more control locally um, which does mean it will be different for places like norwich compared to somewhere like manchester where it's getting more power to do things its own way you know and then that's a that's a that's an issue as well which means that uk cities do depend on national government more than than some other cities um in other countries yeah 
I think, I mean, just to follow on to that, I mean, it's not just that that question of, of power. I mean, I think what is, is crucial as well is that um, this transition is something that has to happen with people and not to people. So in somewhere like Manchester, which is getting those additional powers, that comes with a responsibility to not, not kind of consult people in a, you know, over a decision that's already been made, um, but to actually kind of engage, engage with communities and engage properly so that um, the, yeah, so that that kind of low carbon transition and net zero kind of is addresses the the issues of concern to local people as well as the issues of concern to your your kind of your city region as a whole yeah thank you um thanks sarah and and chris for the additional information and i guess um going to people from cities we now go to uh, talk about another sector that we enjoy as as an audience as a fan you know live music so Tyndall Manchester conducted research commissioned by Massive Attack on how to reduce emissions associated with live music touring. And I guess we're all excited because, you know, we're slowly going back to normal and music festivals are happening. Bands are announcing their, I don't know, touring dates for their concerts. So for our listeners who haven't read your report yet, can you give us a short summary of where live music emissions come from? Yeah. So, live music emissions are somewhere not too dissimilar from any other sort of emissions. We have the energy used in buildings and how efficiently and appropriately that's been used. So, a lot of electricity um, for, for lighting and sound, but also the, the kind of vaccine stuff like catering and, you know, keeping people warm and cool. Um, and that's a part of it, the venues. When we go outside to festivals, um, we have some of those similar services, but those are typically provided by diesel generators um, as opposed to uh, electricity from the mains. So we have we have issues around um, how, how power is and energy is supplied to the site itself. But perhaps more importantly, and certainly this is what um, a lot of the a lot of past studies have, have highlighted is travel is really an important part of live music. Firstly, how the band get around. So, you know, how they travel, you know, how, how how low carbon that is, but also how the audience get there and the options audience members have for getting to shows, you know, do they have to drive, you know, are there other options we can make available to them? And it, it's these these three points in particular that have a particularly um, important effect on the, the carbon dioxide emissions, the, the greenhouse gas emissions for, for the sector. Thank you. And, um, following that then now we know where the emissions come from i guess we kind of have an idea how to reduce these emissions as well so but just to give us more specific answers i guess um how can we reduce emissions from live music aside from the, the maybe the obvious one of you know having better transportation going to the concert events so i mean i'll maybe start on that and uh, chris and sarah can come in at the risk of repeating myself from my city's answer, I think it's essential that it's central to everything that you do. So it's the same. It's the same thing. You know, you can't have a transformation by just tweaking around the edges. You need to look at everything that you do 
how you do it and how you can make that much lower carbon. So if you think of that from the point of like a touring band, it's thinking about right from the beginning of the routing of that tour, how are you going to do that in order to then be able to travel in a lower carbon way? How are you going to design the show so that you're moving less stuff around um, in order in order to play those gigs? Um, if you're thinking about it from like the venue perspective, then they're needing to think about reducing that overall energy demand, but then also supplying that from a lower carbon source. Uh, so whether that's on-site generation or looking at um, kind of re- relationships that make sure there's additional renewable energy supplied in order to to meet that the demand of that venue. And then, you know, for audience travel, it's about thinking not just about how you make the public transport offering, um, you know, affordable, really easy, um, you know, a kind of positive part of your experience, but then also how you make the, you know, the driving to the gig option uh, less, less appealing. And I think that's that's a part in much decarbonisation we're often not so willing to talk about. We want to make the low carbon option compete, but we've got this we've got this much higher carbon option that we don't tax appropriately, that we just allow to have all these externalities, all these impacts in the world uh, that other people have to pay for. And we we're sort of resistant to the idea of making that more difficult. I think really you're kind of missing out on half of your levers there if you don't also look at, at that side. So, again, I would say just really thinking about it centrally right from the beginning and not getting to the end of, you know, you're planning your tour and saying, well, there's no option but to get a private jet between those two places or there's no option but to fly between those two places because of how we've arranged it. Actually, if you'd gone back to the beginning and said, well, we can't have those two dates after each other because we can't, you know, we can't go on rail, for example, in Europe between them. So really thinking about it from the from the beginning and throughout. That was, a, I think that was a really excellent and comprehensive answer from Carly. I mean, I think what that uh, Carly also highlighted is is the fact that within the live music sector there are lots of different types of of organizations and people involved and and so you have the you know you have the musician and band themselves you have the venues you have um you know your 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 crew the people who build the sets you have kind of promoters ticket agents as well as well as the audience so if the sector you know, to transform the sector into a super low carbon sector, there has to be a, a kind of a partnership of all those different roles and different people and different organisations um, working together. Because if any of those pieces are missing, then it's unlikely to work. There are a lot of things that can be done immediately, as Carly said, planning tours differently. Um, moving less equipment around you know things that can be done in the next few years we don't have to wait for you know things like solar airplanes or kinetic dance floors or all these kind of daft kind of um maybe in the future technology will solve the issue um kind of solutions we there are practical steps that the live music industry can take now um it does require planning and it's not easy but they're, they're things that you know off off the shelf that are ready to go um today Thank you. And I guess one of my curiosities, maybe, I don't know, maybe a bit difficult to answer. I'm not sure. But um, I guess with bands who tour from country to country, right? Like I have friends who are really, really big fans of K-pop music, like Korean bands, and they would go to South Korea or wherever 
this band is flying and would fly to the venue, uh, even though they just stay there for a weekend, just to see their Korean idols, for example. And I guess it's true with other even Western bands, you know, they would have fans from the other side of the world who would fly into the country because they really just want to watch their favorite band. So what about, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, fanaticism or be being a fan, you know, is, is it something that is a problem that we can address? So I suppose I might switch to then thinking about that as being more about, um, our demand for aviation in general and how skewed that is. So, you know, in the UK, um, about 75% of flights are taken by 15% of the population. Um, and so we have people that fly a lot and then we have half of the population in any given year who don't fly at all. And so I think that's where you need measures um, to, to, to try and dampen that demand basically for, for lots of aviation. And then if, your friends who are super fans um, want to use their sort of, you know, reduced aviation budget, if you like, um, for that and to tag a holiday onto it and to say, well, actually, that's that's the most important thing to me is to see that band. So I'm going to make if I'm if I'm flying once this year, that's the thing I'm going to do. Um, then I th I think that's, you know, that's their decision and their priority. Um, I think it's I suppose I think it's hard for bands to say that they don't want people to come and see them. Um, but what you certainly can do is um, not have packages that actively promote like a, a flight and a ticket, you know, like trying to encourage people uh, where you, you, know, you might target people in one country when the tour is in another country. Um, and, I, and I suppose for, for lots of bands, these things don't really come in. You know, there's such different types of bands. You know, you've got people all with everything in the back of a van driving around a much more localised area versus these like super groups going all over the world. Um, and in some ways, if you can make the band travel really as efficient as you possibly can, um, then you're reducing the likelihood that them all staying in one place would draw in the sort of, you know, big fans from all around the world. I don't think it's something that we've done lots of analysis on, but it's something that's come up in our research that the difference between that kind of residency model where, you know, a, a band might play for a long time in one place and people come to them versus the band touring so that there's less audience travel. So I think that there's quite a lot of complexity in that. Um, but actually, you know, the data that we've looked at for gigs, it's not doesn't tend to be that lots of people coming to a gig have flown to get to that gig you know they tend to be coming from a sort of it varies between type of gigs but you know from a, a more sort of local base than that if you like um so i guess the next question is how has your work been received by the music sector and do you think it will lead to changes on the ground so I mean, I've been really encouraged by how us sort of coming into the sector as like new, you know, newbies to the music sector. So we've done lots of stuff around analysis of decarbonisation in other in other sectors, you know, that we definitely know about. But we've had to learn about how the music sector works and what the opportunities are um, there. And there's lots of people already working in this in this space, trying to decarbonise uh, live music and try and reduce the environmental impact of live music. So I think... Um, We've we've certainly tried to be very sensitive to that and to build on what's there already and the knowledge and the enthusiasm that's there. And so I've found that people have generally kind of uh, been very supportive and welcomed our work. And I think what what you find is that lots of people hold 
a very strong personal commitment to climate action and they find themselves working in a sector that feels very high carbon and actually people coming together to try and provide a pathway to making live music part of a decarbonized society and economy is is actually like you know kind of pleasing <laughs> um and you know they they want to be part of that too so we've had we've had conversations with like um live who are a trade body in the sector you know they're looking they're looking to work across all these actors that sarah's mentioned before to bring about change and so you know we're i think we're kind of it's about trying to all pull in the same direction and help each other and support and say, oh, maybe you could do more there. Maybe you could do it like this. But in a way that says, you know, we're all actually really committed to trying to make this happen. Um, so I hope that our, our work provides that kind of framing to say how urgent the changes are, how significant they need to be, the kinds of things that can be done as a kind of check back for when you're maybe looking at getting a net zero concert by just offsetting it all. Um, people can say, well, wait a minute, you know, look, um, that's not really the right level of action, the right level of decarbonisation we actually need. That's not what we mean when we say super low carbon music. And I think the sector are pretty well versed in that and know that actually it's about emissions reduction, not just offsetting the emissions that they have. I think that's really, really good to hear. Um, you know, I think bands, um, especially the the bigger ones, I guess, with, with lots of fans, you know, if they say something like they are committed to uh, low carbon emissions, to fighting climate change, you know, it's somehow natural for fans to follow what they say. And I know this for a lot of uh, bands, uh, a lot of fans who follow bands, they're kind of, oh, this is what they're saying maybe I should try and do it as well. So I think it's good that it's being received quite well by the industry. And I guess now connecting these two areas of work, you know, cities and live music, how do you think city governments and the live music sector, how could they work together to have low carbon events? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll make a start on this one. I, th I think firstly, it kind of, it, it, it um, swings back to what, uh, Carly was saying earlier about uh, if you're a city and you want to decarbonize, then um, climate change has to be at the center of everything you do. And, you know, for many, many cities, um, you know, a vibrant music scene is something that's encouraged. It's something that your 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 local authority or your city, um, you know, are, are trying to use in order to, um, you know, to to, bend, to bring people to your city, to have a vibrant city to, for kind of economic benefit. So with that desire to um, have a vibrant music scene, I think from the point of view of a, a city, a city region, a city, then low carbon has to be, you know, has to be part of that. Um, so, and we've also, um, you know, we've I think the the and part of that is is you know the partnerships that we've already mentioned where um cities can work with all the different players within the music industry in order to make that happen whether it's through um emissions from buildings for example or I mean something uh, that could could come into that is the idea of you know licensing say for for music festivals or for, for large venues so to what extent can you can you make um your your urban music festival grid connected for example for as part of your license condition or to include um 
public transport and, and active transport again as, as part of those as part of those li uh, licensing conditions. Um, I mean, something that we we keep coming back to as well is is the idea of of public transport um, and and transport generally. And so, in order to encourage people to travel to music venues by public transport, that public transport has to be it has to be safe. Um, it has to feel safe. It has to be affordable. Um, and it has to run at the times of day and times of the week that people want to use it. So in Manchester, there's many parts of the city that you can't get a night bus to unless it's at the weekend, for example. Um, many parts of the city where the last tram uh, runs at a, at 11 o'clock. Um, and so already the availability of public transport is is constraining how people travel. Um, bike parking. So I was at a, a large city centre venue a couple of weeks ago and there was I think four bike racks <laughs> that were that felt as though they were in a safe and, and well lit place. And, and whilst there's lots of other spaces you can um, lock your bike up, you're then kind of faced with the possibility of maybe having to kind of return on your own when it's maybe dark in order to kind of pick your bike up. And that um, then I think just kind of follows on to, to what our cities and our towns are like in the evening. Um, and I think cities and, and local authorities have a, have a big role to play to making sure that, you know, their towns feel safe to everyone, regardless of their gender, their age, their sexuality or, or their ethnicity. So that, um, yeah, that, that everyone feels that the, the city of, of an evening is a space that's safe and, and open for them. Thanks, Sarah. I think that's that was a really, really good um, advice on what cities can do for for their citizens um, and especially for those um, who want to, for example, come to visit to watch concert. I can relate, for example, to having buses that don't run on weekends which is kind of weird because you kind of think weekends is when people go out but <laughs> in my area they don't run on weekends um and the, uh, the, uh, the alternative is basically walking in this like really shady unlit path that i just wouldn't want to walk in so i think those are that, that that's really great advice for cities which i hope you know, cities are able to follow up in. And I guess um, from what cities can do, I always like to end with, um, you know, our audience always asks us, what can we do? So I always like to end with some advice, I guess, for our audience themselves. So how can our listeners support their cities and their favorite bands to achieve low carbon practices? So I'll maybe just give one there. Um, and I think engaging with like what it is that they're committing to when they say uh, that they're going to be net net zero, for example, because when we talk about being net zero, it mashes together, actually reducing your emissions and offsetting or you know negative emissions. And what we really want to see is people actually cutting their emissions. So, you know, being engaged enough uh, to want to go and find that out, you know, find out the background behind the headline of whatever's been announced for your city or your, your sort of favourite band. And then if that looks great, you know, really celebrating it and, you know, and amplifying that through social media or whatever. And if you've got questions, you know, and you think that they could be doing more uh, to sort of to sort of raise that as well. I mean, there's there's lots of things around um, you know, once those options are there for active travel, for public transport, 
you know, to, to try and take those um, and to make and to make the, the, the emissions reduce in that way. Um, but I think it's not just as an audience member that you've got power here. You know, you've got power as a citizen and as a voter and as a fan that you can kind of operate at a, a level other than just being the gig goer, if you like. So I think really engaging with what they've what they've committed to and whether um, you think they could they could do more or really celebrating where you think they've done excellent stuff. I'm not sure I have I have much uh, difference to add to Carly. I suppose um, I think often in when it comes to decarbonisation, uh, you know, that there's this kind of chicken and egg situation where um, you know someone might say, well, you know, we would go low carbon if our audience demanded it, or if we were it was expected of us, or if we were asked to. So I think when it when it comes to yeah, at, at the end of the day, um, bands and, and musicians and live music, you know, the fans are what makes the industry as it is. So I think, you know, using your your power and your voice as a fan, as Carly said, and, you know, celebrating the low carbon and calling out the high carbon. Thank you both. Um, I guess... That really makes sense. I mean, for our audience, we are both citizens and fans of bands, and we do uh, have the power to engage with our cities as well as with the bands that we kind of idolize, I guess, and tell them, you know, this is what we want you to do. But also, if they're already leading on something, as Carly said, we could celebrate it and amplify it. So I hope that our listeners have gained a better understanding of how we can make cities and live music achieve a low-carbon future. And I'd like to thank again our guests today, Carly, Sarah, and Chris from Pendle, Manchester. And to our audience, thanks for listening to us today. And we hope to see you in our next episode of The Single Talks.